Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rabbi Dovi Ben Shushan from Congregation Magen Avraham here on JRoot Radio. Lucky enough to be able to spend with you the next 45 minutes to an hour in the words of Hezuk. I'd like to share with you a brilliant idea, one that was given over by the Gera Rebbe. And this is something that the first time I heard it, I was absolutely blown away. And I want to share it with you. And if you think about this idea well, you'll see how much this really has to do with the lives of every one of us. Yaakov Avinu tells his sons, Al natik bereni b'mitzrayim. Do not bury me in Egypt. I want to be buried in Ma'arat HaMachpelah with my father and grandfather. And those words, the sons of Yaakov Avinu, they held it to the T, turning to Yosef, the one who actually had the power to be able to deliver the ability to take him out of Egypt and bury Yaakov Avinu in Eretz Israel. By the way, I want to mention that here's an amazing eye-opener of Midah Keneged Midah. The one that got the credit for burying Yaakov Avinu in Eretz Israel was Yosef. And just because of that, Yosef was a great man who buried his father. Therefore, Yosef Midah Keneged Midah is going to be Zochet to a great man who's going to see to the burial of him. Oh, who buried Yosef? Moshe Rabbeinu. Not actually buried, but obviously brought his bones out of Egypt and overseeing the taking out of Yosef out to Eretz Yisrael and instructing the burial of Yosef in the city of Shechem. And now Midah Kenegin Midah, because Moshe Rabbeinu, the great man, buried Yosef. So now who's going to bury Moshe Rabbeinu? Hashem. It's amazing how you see nothing in this world goes without Shamayim observing and watching and giving and doing measure for measure every step in life. A great man buried Yaakov and therefore Yosef, that great man was zochet to a great man to bury him. And who buried Moshe? Hashem. Al natik bereni b'mitzrayim. Now you'd say at first glance that Yaakov Avinu simply wanted to be buried in Marat HaMachpelah. But Rashi and the Mepharshim explained something stronger than that. He was telling them, I don't want you to even bury me in Egypt, not even temporarily. I want you to take me out immediately. Don't put me here in Egypt like what you're going to do with Yosef, and then later on take me out once you leave Egypt on Yitziat Mitzrayim's time. No, not even that. Don't even put me in the ground temporarily. Why not? So Rashi gives a few reasons. One reason, Rashi t- says, Yaakov Avinu told his sons, if you bury me here in Egypt, even temporarily, the Egyptians might make my body, my grave into Avodah I don't want them to stop praying to me. A second reason Yaakov Avinu gives, and that's the reason for this week's speech. And that is our parasha. Says Yaakov Avinu in prophecy that there's going to be a plague. One of the makot is going to be the makah of Kinim. And that makah, all the dust and dirt of the land of Egypt, will turn into lice 
and creeping, crawling little things. It says, Yaakov Avinu, don't put my body into this ground. Because when the Makkah of Kinim come, it's going to be all over the place. Says the Gura Rebbe, Zechit Tzadik Lebracha, that these two answers are not separate, but they're actually one and the same answer. The reason why they're going to turn Yaakov Avinu's grave into an Avodah Zarah is because of the Makkah of Kinim. Explains the Gerarebi, we all know that it's Sadiq when he passes away, his body is so holy that he doesn't decompose. There are many incredible stories. I, now's not the time to tell it, but there are amazing stories of Sadiqim that were buried up years later due to maybe because the Goyim were making highways through the Jewish cemetery or because who knows what was going on and they had to kind of dig up the bodies of certain Sadiqim and they found their bodies perfectly intact without a trace of decay because the Sadiq his body is as pure as his soul it's amazing and because of that, Yaakov Avinu says to Gerarebi, when he's going to pass away, if you're going to put his body into the ground in Egypt, even temporarily, later on when the Makav Kinim is going to come and the entire ground is going to turn into lice, the Egyptians are going to open their eyes and realize, wow, take a look. The lice and the insects did not come near the grave of Yaakov Avinu. And they're going to say, hey, he must be a god. And they're going to go and bow down to him. Ladies, I want to ask you a question. The answer to Gera Rebbe, the insight is brilliant. But I've got to ask a question. Yaakov Avinu comes down to Egypt in the third year of the famine that was supposed to be for seven years. He comes down in the third year and suddenly the famine stops. And although it was destined to be seven years of famine, it was only three because Sadiq Ba Lair. Because this great righteous tzaddik came to the city, came to the country of Egypt, Yaakov Avinu. And in the zechut of Yaakov, they were spared four years of famine. Now when the famine ended in the third year when Yaakov came down, did they make Yaakov into a god? No, they didn't. When Yaakov Avinu comes down to Egypt, and suddenly the Nile, for the first time in three years, the Nile overflows. Did they make him to a god? No, they didn't. Yaakov Avinu comes down to Egypt. They're in poverty. They're in the worst state ever. And suddenly Yaakov Avinu comes to the country and this blessing and they start to flourish and they become the superpower of the world to the extent that Paro turns to Yaakov and asks him a very unethical question. Something you don't ask. Not proper. Not nice. He asks Yaakov Avinu, how old are you? You don't ask an older person that question. It sounds like, you know, uh, how old are you? And Yaakov Avinu gives the answer of years, and there, many of the rabbis want to know, why did Paro go and ask something so improper, so unethical? And they give many answers, but one answer I heard, a beautiful answer, I believe it was in the name of the Noda Bihuda who gives this answer, that Paro, being the leader of his country, he saw the difference. He realized that when Yaakov Avinu came down to the country, suddenly the famine stops, 
Suddenly the Nile overflows. Suddenly they have such blessing that Paro, as the leader of the country, starts making those actuary tables in his head. He starts thinking, wow, how long can we milk this guy? How long are we going to have this good luck charm amongst us? How long are we going to get this? So he is Yaakov, how old are you? Trying to figure out how long are we going to be able to bank on this incredible blessing. Yeah, when Yaakov Avinu came down, there was blessing in Egypt like Egypt has never seen. Did they make him a god at that point? No. So I don't understand. Ending the famine, Nile overflowing, incredible blessing. They didn't make him a god. All of a sudden now we're going to worry that 200 years later by Makat Kinim, where suddenly the entire Egyptian ground is going to turn to lice and the lice doesn't come near what would have been his grave in Egypt because of that they're going to suddenly make him a god? How does that make sense? Ladies, open your hearts. There's a much deeper and a much bigger message in what Yaakov Avinu was telling his sons. Don't bury me in Egypt because of Makat Kinim. Listen to this amazing idea. This is something. Wow. I want to reveal to you what the rabbis call the greatest, and I'm going to put in my words, the greatest double sketch that happened in history from the beginning till now. No one, nobody, was so brilliantly double sketched like this. And you're going to have to hear this as a wow. Hashem brings ten makot to the Egyptians. Ten plagues. Did you know that the first two out of the ten plagues, the Egyptians themselves were able to duplicate? The Khartoumim. The magicians, the wizards, the astronomers, you know, the Kishifmachers of Egypt. They were able to duplicate Dam and Svardeah, the first two. Now, I want to ask you something, ladies. If you were going to bring ten plagues to Egypt, and those ten plagues weren't just to come and punish the Egyptians. If Hashem wanted to punish them, He could have started and ended with Makat Bechorot. No. These ten plagues were actually a real message to the Egyptians and the world. That the famous ten Ma'amarot, the ten utterances, the ten speakings, that God spoke in Parashat Bereshit when He created the world. Hashem created the world through ten utterances, ten ma'amarot. He's going to prove through the ten plagues that He was the one that said those ten utterances. He's going to prove He is the only Creator and the only God in the world. So this was more than just punishment. This was a showdown. This was God making a statement in each and every one of the plagues. To Paro, especially Paro, the one who had the chutzpah to say to Moshe and Aaron, Mi Hashem, you know, who is this God? I looked in my white pages of God and I didn't find them listed, you know. Who is this God that you call Hashem? What a chutzpah, Paro. Unbelievable. What a, what a kafui tov. Here you are, Paro. You saw Yaakov Avinu. Here you are, Paro. You had a Jew by the name of Yosef save the entire country of Egypt. Egypt would have been a speck of nothing in history if not for Yosef, if not for a Jew. And then you turn around to the God of the Jews and you say, 
I never heard of this God. Who is he? Where did he come from? What a chutzpah. Could you imagine? And here now, Paro, standing in front with Moshe Aharon, the plagues are coming. If you were to bring down these 10 plagues, and they were to prove the 10 Ma'amarot of history, to prove to Paro, you know good and well who this God is. This is the God that created the world. And each plague is going to prove to you another one of the 10 utterances that God created and said when he created the world in the beginning of time. I'll just give you a quick example. And the Maharal is the genius behind this Cheshbon. Says the Maharal, just as an example, I'm not going to go through all 10, but just to show you where I'm coming from. As an example, what was the very first of the 10 utterances of creation? Remember, Hashem Kivyachol spoke, and through the speech and speaking and utterance that God spoke, the world began its creation. If you want to get this on a deeper level, I don't know if I should go too far with this. If you want to get this on a deeper level, Bereshit bara, what was the first thing that God created in the beginning of time? Et. That's the first thing he created. Et. Not et hashamayim. No, no, you went too far. Et. Et is aleph through taf. He created the alphabet. The alphabet. And then what did he do? He took those letters of the alphabet that he created of aleph through taf, and he combined these letters together and he formed words. And those words he uttered, and upon uttering those words in combination of letters, the creation followed suit. Shamaim, sham, maim. Every single word in Hebrew has a root to it. And each letter adds a different spice, flavor, color, and characteristic to what that item is going to be. It's a brilliant idea. And God created through ten utterances of combining these letters together to make what we know as the world created. So what's the first utterance of creation? Bereshit. And therefore, what's the last of the ten makot? Makat bechorot, reshit. The firstborn is to be killed. What is the second of the utterances of creation? Vayihi or. And that's why the second to last makah is vayihi choshech. And what was the third? Well, that's Shamayim Va'aretz. And therefore, the third to the last is going to be the Arbeh that blotted out Shamayim and wiped out Aretz. Every single one of the Makot corresponded to every single one of God's utterances in creation to show through the Makah that He is the one that's control and dominion on that which He created from the beginning of time. And therefore, He's the one God, monotheism, on everything, unlike what Egypt thought that there were many gods and it was kind of decompartmentalized, you know what I mean? So that they actually had a god for everything. They had a god for the animals and they had a god for the oceans. And they had a god for, no, 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 my friends. Hashem says, you got it all wrong. There's only one god. And he's the only God that created everything. And come, Hashem, says Hashem in the Ten Makot, I'm going to show you that I have control and dominion on every single aspect of life. On the ground, on the heavens, on the animals, on the people, on the water. I'm going to show it to you across the board. One God fits all. Amazing idea. So ladies, 
If these temakot were meant to be ten proofs that God is echad, then would you incorporate in those ten makot the first two that are able to be duplicated? Wouldn't it have been better if Hashem would have brought ten makot that the Egyptians cannot duplicate? You see, because the moment that the sorcerers, the Khartoumim, are able to replicate and duplicate the makah that God did, it takes away a little bit from the thunder of God's miracle, right? Makes sense? Because then they say, well, what's the big deal? We can do that too. So that's not so godly. We can do that too. So why then, when Hashem is trying to prove that He's the only God, through the ten makot, of course, why would He incorporate the first two makot as makot that the Egyptians would be able to duplicate? Give them ten makot that they can't duplicate. And that would really prove your point. And the answer is a, is a genius answer. I, I can't get over this answer. And I'm happy you came today to hear this. Because I wanted to share this with somebody. Hashem double sketched them something like you'll never see in history. What a brilliant strategic plan. Hashem bedafka on purpose. Went and made the first two makot duplicatable, so to speak. That they may duplicate. You know why? Because watch this. What did the Egyptians believe with the God in Egypt? They bowed down to the Nile. Says the Midrash, not only did they bow down to the Nile as their God, but they also bowed down to everything in the Nile. The Taninim is what they were called. All the, uh, all the, uh, I don't know how to put it exactly, the uh, water serpents, you know, I don't want, Taninim could be the crocodiles in the Nile, Taninim could be the frogs in the Nile, whatever it was. So they bowed down to the Nile and to the life in the Nile. So what did Hashem do? Brilliant. Hashem goes and He brings the first Makkah down. And now He turned the Nile into blood. And He turns to the Egyptians now and says, okay, let's see if you guys can do this. And the Egyptians says, we can do this. And they go and they turn the Nile into blood as well. You fools. You just killed your own God. You just took what you thought was God. And you turned it into blood, which was the symbol of slaughter. Hashem wasn't done yet. Then he went to the serpents in the Nile. He brought out the crocodiles and the frogs, which was Sephardea. And Hashem says, hey guys, can you do this one? And they said, yeah, we can do this one too. Oh, you go ahead, knock yourself out. And they went and they did Sephardea. And you know what they just did now? Now you just literally disproved the second god in Egypt. You just shot your own god in the leg. Because you showed it's not godly. It's made in China. It's human made. Once it's human made, it's not godly anymore. Which is what our issue is with Christianity. We have many issues with Christianity. But one is that they turned a humanly made into a God. It doesn't jive with what God means. Look how Hashem set them up for such a fall. And that's why in this coming week's parasha, when you're going to read the words of Et Asher Hit Alalti B'Mitzrayim, the word Hit Alalti means I made a mockery out of them. I didn't just hit them with punishment, says God. I didn't just put them in their place. I didn't just give them what they deserved. I made a joke out of them. God made a joke out of the Egyptians. How? First step, 
First Makkah, he set them up for the biggest fall. They killed their own God. Second Makkah, another fall. They killed what they also called God. And here comes the third Makkah. The third Makkah is called Kinim. Kinim is the lice, like we said. But ladies, this Makkah they cannot duplicate. This Makkah is going to now scream out the truth. And by the way, this is really good to know when you come to deal with people and debating their falsehoods. In life sometimes, you have to spend a little time first proving to the person what they're grabbing onto and believing is truth is not true. And only then could they be susceptible and open to want to only then hear truth. It's the famous concept of, is the cup half full or half empty? First, you got to get them to pour out the cup, and then you could fill up the cup with truth. But as long as they're filled with shtuyot, you could talk them truth from today till tomorrow, and it doesn't penetrate. So Hashem taught us a powerful lesson in teaching. Sometimes you got to teach people that what they thought was true is sheker. Pour the garbage out so that you'll be open and ready to accept real truth. That's what he did with the Egyptians. First, he got they themselves to literally disprove on their own to themselves that what they thought was God's was not. Okay, wow. So, hey, uh, we killed our own Nile, so that can't be the God. We created our own frogs and crocodiles, so they can't be the God. So now the Egyptians say, now we're back to square one. So what is the truth? Now that we know what the truth is not, now what is the truth? Oh, here comes Makkah number three. This is going to be the Makkah of truth. Kinim. The Makkah that you cannot duplicate. Because this Makkah demonstrates that there's only a Hashem and nobody else. The Makkah of Kinim is lice. And like Rashi tells us that anything... Within three tfachim of the ground, the koach hatum'ah has no control, no power over. And therefore that demonstrates that this is a Hashem. This is a God. This isn't some koach. This is a, a real bona fide God. Kinim is the makad that told the truth. And now I'm about to show you something that I think is wow. How do you spell kinim? So it's chaf, nun, yud, and mem sofit. You know, those four letters together, kinim, we found earlier in the Torah a few parashiot ago as well. But we pronounce the words, words slightly different. A few parashiot ago, when the brothers came down to Egypt, not knowing yet that that's Yosef on the throne, Yosef turns to his brothers and he says to them, Miraglimatem. He accused them of being spies coming down to Egypt. And you know what they said back to him? Lo, kenim anachnu. Kenim. It's the exact same letters. Chav, Nun, Yud, Kenim. What does the word Kenim mean? So we look in Rashi, and Rashi tells us that the word Kenim means emet. Truth. Meaning, Kenim anachna. We're telling the truth. We are not miraglim. We're good people. We're truthful people. That means the word Kenim means truth. No wonder the third Makkah is Kenim. Because this is going to be the Makkah to finally bring out the truth. Makkah number one was to disprove the falsehood. Makkah number two was disprove falsehood. Now that you finally realize that what you thought was right is completely wrong, now I can tell you the truth. Here's Makkah number three. Here's Kinim. Milashon Kenim, which means truth. So at the moment that God's about to hit him with the truth, Makkah Kinim, 
which is going to be what type of makkah? The makkah that the entire ground and dust of Egypt is going to turn to lice and little ants and creepy crawling things. Could you imagine, says Yaakov Avinu, if they would have buried me in Egypt, and at the moment that the makkah of the lice and all the creeping crawling things on the dust and dirt of the ground of Egypt turns into these little insects and so on, and they don't come near my grave, at that moment, the Egyptians are going to say, Hey! You know where this amazing Makkah is coming from? It's coming from Yaakov Avinu. Because look, all the lice and the ants and the creeping, crawling kinim isn't going near his grave. And says Yaakov, instead of them giving the credit due to God and bringing out that Hashem Echad, the Makkah of truth, instead, they're going to give me the credit. And that's why Alna Tik Bereni Bimitzrayim. You cannot bury me in Egypt, not even temporarily, because I don't want to get in the way of the truth. We're here for Kavod Shamayim. We're not here for Kavod Atzmi. We're here to bring as much Kavod and as much glory and honor to Hashem. We're not here to bring Kavod to ourselves. Every one of us was put here in the world to make Kiddush Hashem. Says Yaakov Avinu, if you're going to put me in the ground in Egypt, comes Makat Kinim, they're going to stop bowing down to me as a god because they're going to give me the credit for the Makah because they're going to see it's not going to go near my grave. Instead of giving the credit where credit's really due, instead of giving the credit to Hashem. And because of that, says Yaakov, don't even bury me in Egypt temporarily. Take me out now. And from here you see, I think, an amazing message. It's not enough to buy into the truth. It's not enough to even be a purveyor of truth. But be so careful that when the truth comes out, make sure it comes out in its greatest form. Don't water down the truth. Don't get in the way of the truth. Don't be mustier the truth. Your job is to bring the most honor to Hashem. Do it in a way that Hashem will get all and all the credit. It's not the lawyer. It's not the doctor. It's not anyone but Hashem that can help you in this world. And so many times we hear people, and they mean good. They don't mean bad. But so many times we hear, oh yeah, I, I, I got this great doctor. I went to this guy and that guy, but I went to this great doctor. This guy's amazing. He's brilliant. He's a professor here and he's a this and he's a that. And he's the guy that cured me. No, 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 wait, slow down. Slow down. Easy does it. Hashem has a lot of shalichim in this world. There's a lot of good shalichim. Hashem has a lot of good messengers that he brings out his incredible rachmanut. His incredible chesed that he does with people even at times that we don't deserve it. And he brings it through good people. Don't get me wrong. He brings out good things through good people. But they're not more than a messenger. So just like they say, don't shoot the messenger, don't praise the messenger either. Understand that he's a messenger. But there's a Bore Olam. There's a Hashem behind the scenes that's pulling the strings of every single situation in life. Nothing can happen without him. Ladies, nobody can give you anything in this world and no one can take away from you anything in this world without Hashem willing it. 
No one can do good to you and no one can do bad to you without Hashem willing it. It's not them. It's not them. It's absolute hashgacha pratit of Hashem moment to moment in our lives. And instead of looking at them, look up and realize, one second, why is Hashem doing this? And therefore be so careful. So careful. It's not the lawyer who got you off the hook. It's Hashem. It's not the doctor who cured you. It's Hashem. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that if a person chas shalom is not feeling well to sit home and close his eyes and say, Hashem, Hashem, I'm not saying that. Hashem put us in a world that there is a norm and a nature to follow. God forbid we should never know. But if a person is not feeling well, you are required to get up and go to a doctor. But while you're in the doctor's office and you're going through the motions, as the doctor is as well, in the back of your mind, you're supposed to be reminding yourself, it's not the doctor that's curing me. It's not the antibiotics for the next 10 days that's going to do it for me. It's only Bore Olam. And so too with every area of life. Don't water down the truth. Don't get in the way of the truth. Give it over right. The way, the truth of Hashem, He gets the credit. And that's why sometimes the guys here in the shul, they make fun of me a little bit, but I'm okay with this. But anytime we talk about things, we already have this little quip in the shul that whatever we talk, what's going to be, we're in contract now to buy the building, the answer is... We point the finger upward. What's going to be uh, people uh, is a little bit behind in their donations this year? We have so much money outstanding. How are we going to pay the rabbis this month? Finger goes up to the ceiling. What's going to be? Every time we're ready, quick, we're ready. Have the, everybody knows when they see the finger pointing upwards, they understand what the answer is. He's the great puppet master, Kivyachal. He's pulling all the strings of every single scenario in life. And therefore, only he gets the credit. Nobody else but him. Yeah, beautiful children. No, it's not that you know, my mother-in-law's eyes. and my No, no. Hashem gave you beautiful kids. He wanted you to appreciate your mother-in-law so they have her eyes. <laughs> but, it's, but it's all Borei Olam. It's all thank you, Hashem. People run up and say, wow, you have such beautiful kids. Your greatest thing that you can do is say it's from Hashem. When you do that, it wards off all ayin hara, by the way. It wards off everything. Because when you say it's from Hashem, you're basically saying a statement. I don't deserve this. It's not because of me. I didn't do anything to get this. Hashem decided to give it to me. And He's the Rahman. He's the, he's the all-merciful God. And because of that, when people start complimenting you with things that you have that they might not have, instead of them putting the spotlight on you, which is what we call the evil eye, and getting heaven to open up the books on you, to start to look and realize, wait one second, does this person really deserve what we gave them? Which is the process of Ayin Hara. Instead, you can ward off that whole process by simply saying, it's from Hashem. Because by saying that, what you're saying is, I really don't deserve. Ah, so you understand it's not you, and you don't, there's no reason to open the books on you. The person himself is modeh, that it's not them, they don't deserve it, it's all God's mercy. Oh, that, that, Shamayim knows better than anybody that God's mercy is, is boundless, is limitless. I had a tremendous inspiration from this. Some of you might know. 
I have a very famous story that went around years ago when I was in a car accident in 2009. At that time, it was the night before Rosh Hashanah. And uh, I just gave a class here in the community and I ran to uh, Bnei Yosef to sit shul to grab a late Arbit. And the idea was I was to jump in my car and drive back to Lakewood. In those days, I was still living in Lakewood. And um, I bumped into Rico on the way out and he handed me about 300 CDs from classes that I gave the last few years before that. And he said, you're going to Lakewood, take these CDs and give it out. Because these days, Aser Yimei Teshuvah is a time where people listen to the classes probably the most from the whole year. So okay. So I went back to Lakewood and you, you already know the story. I'm not here to tell you the entire story, but basically I didn't make it home that night. Basically, I have no memory outside of the outer bridge. I have no memory of that night at all. I have one memory though. I have a memory of a police officer sticking his head through the driver's side window of my car and looking at me right in the eye and saying, you're alive? And me looking at, back at the guy and saying, yeah, why? I didn't even know I was in an accident. I had no clue until later on when my brother went down to the uh, junkyard to find what was not left of the car that the tow truck driver tells my brother, you know, my condolences to your family. And he says, what do you mean condolences? He's alive. And the tow truck driver said, what are you talking about? He can't be alive. There's no way anyone can live that. And then he tells my brother, he says, you know what happened? He drove off the Garden State Parkway going 80 miles an hour. And he went right off the parkway, hit a few trees, hit some sort of a retention wall, and the car flipped over the wall and fell 100 feet down to Washington Avenue that runs in Sayreville, New Jersey, underneath the Garden State Parkway. And the car kept going. It didn't stop until further down the road when it wrapped its way around the divider. When the cops showed up, says the tow truck driver, they didn't even call emergency services. They didn't call the ambulance. There was nothing left. He says he overheard one officer tell the other, this is all about paperwork. Uh, you know, don't bother, just call the morgue. I was in that car for 15 minutes with no help until a woman who was a volunteer from the neighborhood, she gives a scream. This is the way I'm telling it over is the way the tow truck driver told it to my brother. She gives a scream, somebody's moving in that car. And when the cops heard that, I said, what? One cop runs over, breaks the glass on the driver's side, sticks his head in and looks me right in the eye. That's the one memory I have of the night. And he says, you're alive? I said, yeah. Why? I didn't even know it was an accident. The next morning I wake up in Robert Wood Johnson, Sayreville, New Jersey, in the hospital there. My father-in-law is standing over me and my brother-in-law is standing over me. And they're saying to me, Dilby, you're a miracle you're alive. And not just that. He says, but... I came out with Hashem's mercy, with a sprained thumb. A sprained thumb. Kol atzmotai tomarna Hashem michamocha. Matzil anime hazak mimeno. You saved me that night, and not only did you save me, you saved every piece inside of me. You saved every bone from breaking. You saved, you know what we're talking about over here? Can you imagine driving off the roof of this building that we're sitting here now, 80 miles an hour? Coming out with a sprained thumb. Hashem saved my life that night. And when my brother went to check out the car, as you all know the famous story, 
He came back to the hospital the next day and he's holding my koracha because my tefillin was in the car. And he says to me, Dubi, what was all over the driver's seat and passenger seat? He says, there's nothing left of the rest of the car. The car is an accordion. The back of the car is right up to the driver's seat and the front of the car is right up to the driver's seat. There was only left the driver's seat and the passenger seat. He says, what was all over the seats? I said, I don't know. He says, it looked like these sprinkly shards of diamonds all over these seats. I'm thinking, I don't know what you're talking. Then it hit me that the night before Rico gave me those 300 CDs that I put next to me in the, driver, in the passenger seat. And obviously, those CDs were broken down to small smithereens. And he couldn't believe it. And I said to him, that's the 300 CDs. They must have been through the accident smashed to pieces. He says, yeah, except for one. And he sticks his hand in the bag and he pulls out the one Pachshemen, the one CD out of 300 that wasn't even scratched. And I looked at the title of the CD. Where's your bulletproof vest? Are you wearing a pair of CT? Now, ladies, I want to tell you something. I told this story hundreds of times all over the world. I've told it in Panama. I broke my teeth in Hebrew to say it in Israel to, uh, to the IDF soldiers. And they were all crying. These are soldiers who are not religious. <laughs> and they, they, were, they were taken by this. Now, Shem saved me that night. The famous Gemara that says that the first thing they look at the moment of judgment is to see if the person is a man, to see if he's wearing a pair of tzitzit. Does he have a zechut to be saved? Because the tzitzit is an amazing shmirah. Now, I want to tell you the reason why I'm telling you this story. I want to tell you a secret behind that story that not too many people know. A very big book writer, I don't want to say his name, came and asked me to write this story in his book. He writes many of my stories. He says, I want to write this story. He says, this story, I want, I want everyone to hear. I said, I can't, I can't let you write this story. He says, why not? He says, because I believe that the credit of Hashem saving my life that night is not going to come out right. He says, why? He says, I told him because right before that I don't want to say the whole story now I was lucky enough to really beg and plead and I got four pairs of tzitzit from the great Rev Scheinberg Zechet Tzadik Lebracha I don't know if you remember Rabbi Scheinberg he, he was known to wear you know 180 pair I'm not exactly sure what the number was 180 pair of tzitzit and I, I used to beg Rabbi Scheinberg, I begged him, please, you know, I want one of your pair of tzitzit. I even one time, I showed up to him holding my own pair because the time before I asked him for a pair of tzitzit, he told me that he would give it to me. He says, but he, he wears a certain number. And if he would give me the pair of tzitzit, he'd be missing one. So I, I, I showed up this time telling him, I'll trade you. Take a pair of mine and I'll take a pair of yours. Long story short, he gave me four pair of tzitzit. That night, I was wearing one of them. I lost that pair of seat that night because when the jaws of life, when the fire department came and ripped whatever wasn't left of the car left and pulled me out of the car, they cut off my clothing and they cut right through my seat. So I'm now I'm down to three, which actually I'm wearing one you know, right now. And what I'm amazed by is 
I was so scared to tell anyone this story. Because I said to myself, you know what people are going to say? Ah, now I get it, Rabbi. It was Rabbi Scheinberg's seat that saved you. Like the magic yarmulke, you know? It was Rabbi... No. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't give away those seats for anybody, for anything. Somebody once offered me a lot of money for one of those, but I said, absolutely not, no. These tzitzitas, they're priceless. I wear one pair on Yom Kippur, I wear one pair on Purim, and one pair I wear every day. And I can't give it away, but at the end of the day, that's not what saved me. It's a zichut, yes. Was there a mitzvah on me that protects you wherever you go? Yes. Is tzitzit an amazing shmirah? 100%. Rabbi Scheinberg, tzitzit kadosh mitahor? 100%. But Hashem saved me that night. He's the one who caught me at the bottom of a hundred foot fall. And I was so scared to let anybody know. That any time I, I, I made sure anyone said over the story, I said over the story, and put it a book, not a book, don't mention who's tzitzit. Just simply, he was wearing a pair of tzitzit. That's all. Because the truth is, any pair of tzitzit can save your life. Because it's Hashem who's saving you. Don't water down the truth. Don't get in the way of the truth. Because then people would have given the credit to the tzitzit of Rabbi Scheinberg instead of giving the credit to Hashem, who was the only one who saved my life that night. I was very inspired by this message. And I was hoping very much. And Baruch Hashem, I believe over the years, that it was the message of the tzitzit that went out and that Hashem would save anyone in the zechut of his unbelievable mitzvot. This was something that hit home very hard to me. This was something that we were tested many times over. Because you know what Hashem says to us? Ani rishon va'ani aharon umi baladai en elokim. Hashem says, listen. Ani rishon. Every time you talk to a Jew, they'll tell you, of course it's Hashem, but I made the bear, I made the sale. Of course it's Hashem, but he's a good doctor. Of course it's Hashem, but, you know, it's your protexia that's going to get you into the school. No, that's not true. Says Hashem, Ani Rishon Ani Aharon. It's not enough just to say, of course it's Hashem in the beginning. And then go on and put your faith into other people and into other things and into other talents and into other protexia or hookups or connections. Hashem says, if you're going to put your faith into other people, I'm going to take a step back, like the way Chobata Levavot writes, and I'm going to put your destiny in the hands of the people that you put your faith in, and let's see what they do for you. Let's see. And then finally, finally, when you realize that it's not the doctor, and it's not the lawyer, and it's not the hookups, and it's not the protexia, and it's not the government offices, and the le- it's Hashem, and nobody else. That's the moment that Hashem says, Oh, Ani Aharon, you came back to me. You started with me, didn't you? But then you ran off to everybody else. But Ani Aharon, then you came back to me and you realized it's no, nobody else can do anything in this world for you but Hashem. Nobody. And that is the moment of truth. And sometimes we got to go through the gambit. And boy, do we got to make the rounds. 
And boy, do we get our lickings. Oh, we take beatings. Until we remember this message that Hashem shows us time and time again. It's not this, it's not that, it's not him, it's not them, it's not this. You're going to see at the end, it's always going to come back and be Hashem. And the moment you stop believing in everybody else in their shtuyot, and you start looking up to God, and I tell this to girls so many times who want to get married. It's not the shadchanit. It's not the guy, it's not the person, it's not the person you wrote on the resume. Of course you have to go through a normal normal hishtadlut of life because Hashem made this world with a normal nature. But they have no power. At the end of the day, it's only Hashem. He's the only one that's going to bring you the zivug. Nobody else. Nobody else. Nobody else. And we get this. We find this out. My wife and I were not blessed in the beginning of our marriage with kids. Not right away. And many of the rabbis in Israel used to tell me, Hashem wants you to feel out. He loves to hear from you. But that was a year, two years, three years, almost four years without kids, where most of the friends that married at the same time in our circles were on their second and third child. And we were still waiting for our first. And I tell you, that was a suffering. Ah, Baruch Hashem, what a kapara. That was a suffering of Asking yourself in those quiet moments at two o'clock in the morning, staring up at the ceiling from your bed, are you ever going to have a kid? And when this goes on for a year and two and three, oh boy, are you tested? Oh, are you tested? We come back to America and we started going the rounds with the doctors. We went to every doctor you could imagine. We went to doctors in Israel, overseas. United States, anyone you heard of and anyone you didn't hear of, we went to. And we made the rounds. Till finally there was one last doctor that everyone talked about. And they told us that this is the out of the box doctor. Here's the guy that succeeded with babies where no other doctors with other couples didn't. He's the one that you go for extreme cases. A German doctor. Never forget this doctor, Dr. Toth in the Upper West Side. And because his theory was so radical, insurance wouldn't cover him. It's a thousand dollars just to Shalom Aleichem. And then the, the coming back for the what was another two grand, just walking into his office. Ah, all of it was part of the amazing kapara that Hashem showed us. And we come into this German doctor's office. And at first, he sits back in his big leather chair and he smiles and he says, David, babies, that's easy. I'll never forget his voice in my head. Babies, that's easy. Such a balgaiva, as if he's, you know, he's the guy. And, and behind him, I give him a listen. He has this wall of pictures of uh, 3,000 babies, you know, you know uh, and that's his calling card. And, and listen, hey, a good shliach, God bless him. A good shliach. I said, Doc, you know, you help us. He says, absolutely. He starts putting us through the most demeaning of tests. And this was a kaparan itself. And Baruch Hashem, we live through that. And at the end of it all, he says, you have no chance. And then he came and he said, I want to give you a medicine. It's a very far chance of working. Let's see if it works. Go on it for a week. Come back. I'll check you again. Go on it for a week. We come back. Again, he checks me and my wife. 
no chance. I think it's a good idea to go and start looking into adoption. Now this was the last stop on the train. This was it, the last guy. There was nobody left in the, in the, in the white pages. We hit everybody in infertility. And if you know how hard it is for me to talk to you about this, you have no idea. I'm holding back the emotions, but I think you should hear this. My wife knows I'm telling you this now. I, I, I will be sleeping in the garage tonight. I, I, it's, it's, it's not a joke. But I really believe there's a toilet here. We walk out of his office after that, and my wife turns to me, and she just bursts out crying right there on the front stoop at the door of the doctor on the Upper West Side. And she looks at me, and she says, crying, bawling tears, it's, it's over. That's it. That's it. We're done. It's over. He was the last guy. There's no, there's no one left to go to. He was the last stop of infertility doctors. He was the far-fetched guy. And he just told us, no shot. There's no shot. And I remember holding back the tears, and I turned to my wife and I said to her, who's in charge? Who's the boss? He is the last doctor. And now we know that we can't put our faith in doctors. Now, but now we come to Ani Aharon. Who's the real last stop? I said, Hashem is going to send us a child. You'll see. And she just burst out crying. I don't blame her. And while I was telling her those strong words, inside, I was also crying. We went home. Ladies, 30 days later, I get a frantic call. Come home now! I came home from yeshiva. My wife is standing there in the kitchen, and her hand is shaking, and she's holding this thing in her hand. You never believe you see two stripes in your life. I tell you, the, the, I'm not going to say more than that. I'm being taped here. Forgive me for talking this way. Even that I shouldn't have said. You never believe to see that second stripe. You, you, at that point, you don't think it's possible for you ever to see that. Maybe just on the box that demonstrates what's yes and what's no. You know? But you never thought to see it in real life. I looked at that dumb thing. And that second stripe, and I gave such a scream. I started dancing in the living room. I was dancing with this dumb thing around. I, I, I went out of my mind. I was screaming, Odul Hashem Kitov, Odul Hashem Kitov. And then I made the phone call to the German doctor. I said, Doc, I said, you see, there's a God in the world. And there's something much bigger than medicine. And although you told us we had no shot, but not only do I have a shot, I just want to tell you what just took place in my home. I said, this guy, Rasha Merusha, this guy, he says to me, David, impossible. And I hear his voice in my head as I'm talking to you. Impossible. He says to me, go get the box. I got the box. He says, read the side of the box. I read the side of the box. He says, what does it say? It says 92% accurate. You are the 8%. Could you imagine somebody doing that to you? Popping your bubble like that? Give me five minutes to relish at it. No. God? No, my friend. Impossible. He made us go for a blood test. We ran out that day to Ocean Avenue. And sure enough, it came back. And we sent the results to the doctor. And the doctor refused to get on the phone. Ge'e. He had only the, we called him, I don't know how many guys, I wanted to sick it to him. 
But the nurse said, you know, every time I called, the doctor's visiting, you know, whatever. And she says, yes, the doctor said it's a fluke. I said, okay. 16 months later, my wife becomes pregnant with my second daughter. I call up Dr. Toth. Dr. Toth, we had another fluke. And he says to me the same, it's unbelievable, these guys. Impossible, the same word. Hashem wanted to show me. And I'm hoping that I could show you that there's nobody that deserves the credit but Him. And don't give the credit to anyone but Him. And don't put your faith into other people but Him. He waits for you to stop believing in other people and other things. And He says, no, are you done yet? You went to every Shadchanit in the land. You went to every doctor in the world. What happened? Nothing. Are you ready to come back to me? Ani Aharon? I'm always the last stop where you realize no one else can do anything but me. And this is what I believe. I have here in my email one of the greatest stories that I've read recently about Rabashkin. He gave this in a speech recently. I would read it word for word by email and it might be a good idea. I'd read it word for word in an email but the basic gist of the story was that he said right before he got out the warden came down and he said, Rabashkin? That means into my office. Rabashkin comes into his office. He takes off his talit and tefillin. He was in the middle of praying. I believe it was Halil that day. And the warden says, your lawyers did not want to break to you the news. They left me the dirty work to do. And he hands him an official government letter. And Rabashkin opens it in big black letters. It says across the top, denied. Denied. Apparently, in the justice system, there's a certain amount of times that you're able to appeal a judgment to the Supreme Court. And this was the last shot, the last time. And they appealed with everything they had, and the final appeal was denied. Rabashkin was looking at this, and he says, I read it in the email on Friday, word for word from his speech. He says, ah. He picked himself up. He went back to his cell. And he put his talit and tefillin back on. And he continued to daven, and he said, Halel. And he says, Hashem. Now, nobody can take the credit for getting me out of this jail but you. Not the lawyers. Nobody. I was just denied the last chance to get out of jail on the last appeal. That's it. I'm here for eight years and some odd days. And they're expecting me to be here for another 30 some odd years of his term. Hashem now. You showed me that nobody can take me out of this cell but you. Mitzrayim, Metzer Yam. That means a cell of 50, the 50 degrees of Tum'ah. We were in a cell and only Hashem could take us out of that cell. Says Rabashkin, now you showed me black and white. No one can take me out of jail but you. And no one's going to get the credit now but you. Oh! A week later, out of the blue, 
that same guy, the same warden comes out, Rabashkin, get out! You believe that? Yeshuat Hashem keheref ayin. In a minute, in a split second, in a blink of the eye, he could change everything. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to stop believing in everybody else and everything else. It's not the judicial system. It's not the lawyers. It's not the Supreme Court, Rabashkin. It's Hashem. He told me that I do be. It's not the Toyota Camry. It's not the uh, emergency services. It's not even Rabbi Scheinberg's seat seat. It's only Hashem. He saved me that night. And only Hashem gave me that child. And only Hashem is the one that brings Yeshuot to the Jewish people every moment. This is the amazing message of Yaakov Avinu. Give the credit only where credit is due and show him that I'm not putting my faith into anything and anyone else but you, Hashem. And that's the moment that we find such a closeness and we find Yeshuat Hashem Keheref Ayin. Thank you for listening, ladies.